Good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as you're finding your way there. Let me add my happy Mother's Day to all of those of you who are mothers. And uh, let me also let you know that as Ian said, uh, I was a little concerned because when he started to introduce me, he said, I want to introduce you to my good friend. And I consider Ian closer than a good friend. I consider Ian a very dear brother. I am an only child. I do not have any brothers. The closest thing that I have to brothers are pastors. And there is a short list of pastors that I put on the brother list. Ian's on that list. And uh, I don't know if you realize it or not, but you are a blessed people who have been given a very great gift in your pastor. As Ian and I have talked and walked and prayed and cried and laughed together over the course of 14 or 15 years, um, I have uh, seen godliness and humility and leadership and deep commitment to the Word of God and a mind that takes complex things and makes them simple for people like me. And so I want you to know that I've been paying attention and I've been wanting to get here for all of those 13 years that you've been in existence to see if this really could be as good as I think it is. And I've only been around for a little bit, but I think it's pretty good. And the best thing about Ian is he doesn't believe anything that I just said which means he's very humble, so don't tell him what I just said about him, okay? Now, um, he asked me to preach a few months ago, and I thought, oh boy, what, do I, what am I, what am I going to preach? And I just, like, he said, you can preach anything. I'm like, well, I guess you're just going to be invited into the sanctification process of the things that God's been doing in my life over the recent months and years. And so, I'm assuming that I'm not the only broken Um, center in the room, and I got some stuff that needs to get fixed. We just sang that Jesus is risen, he's alive, that means that he is here, and he is about to speak. Question is, are you ready to listen? And I want to invite you to listen to the things that I've been listening to, and so let me just read to you one verse. Can you handle one verse today? Ian probably doesn't just give you one verse, does he? Uh, I'm going to give you one verse today, and there'll be some cross-references too, but let's read it. And it's in Matthew chapter 5, just one verse, verse 5, very familiar words, probably not new for you. Jesus said this in his most famous sermon, blessed are the meek, for they, and only they, shall inherit the earth. And of course, if you're familiar with the context here, this is, this is the beginning of three chapters in our, in our English Bibles of Jesus introducing what Christianity is all about and what the heart of a believer and a follower of Jesus uh, should be all about and, and what kind of attributes and characteristics come out of this. This is what we call the Beatitudes, and it's eight different attitudes that ought to be in the life of a follower of Jesus. Uh, my, wife Andrea is over, my wife Andrea is over here and she exudes this quality and she's been asking me to kind of catch up speed a little bit in this quality and the quality that we're talking about is meekness. Andrea and I have four children. They're all grown and out of the house now. Our oldest daughter is Brooke and um, Brooke was born in 1996 When Brooke was five months old, we found out that Zach was on the way. So, 
Zach arrived in the home when Brooke was 13 months old. And I'm telling you, it was like bringing home a chew toy to a dog. And Brooke realized that simply because of her birth order, her position, her strength, her more developed mind at that point, as a 13-month-old mind would be developed, that she was in a position of power. She was in a position of influence. She was in a position of strength. She was in a position to control and dominate. And she liked it. And she realized that unless she got some coaching and training and some discipline, that Zach was not going to have a long life. So, do you know that, that Brooke's very first word, do you remember, how many of you have a child, do you remember their very first word that they ever said? Remember, you know what it was? You know what Brooke's first word was? Gentle. You know why? Because that was the most often repeated word in our home. Because we didn't have to teach Brooke to power up. We didn't have to teach Brooke to dominate. We didn't have to teach Brooke to control. We had to teach her to be gentle, to nurture, to love, to be kind, to share, and to stop chewing on Zach. And so, uh, the reason, you know, you look at that, it's like, well, that's a really jacked up kid. You know why she's jacked up? Because she's got a jacked up dad, and his DNA's in her. And the, real, the realization is this, none of us have to be taught to control. All of us have to be taught and learn to take the posture of meekness. Um, Ian mentioned to you that we planted and pastored Gospel City Church in South Bend, Indiana area. Um, in the year 2020, I hesitate even mentioning the year 2020 because you tried to forget that year, right? In the year 2020, our elders gave uh, us a sabbatical. And so they sent us away for the first three months of 2020. You following along? January, February, March of 2020, they sent us to a very warm weather location. The only assignment they gave me, we don't want you to write a book, we don't want you to create a sermon series. Your assignment is to rest. We've got everything. And they sent me away at a time we had the greatest attendance our church has ever seen. We had more giving and more money available. We were planting two churches. We were in the middle of an $8 million building project. We were getting ready to open that up. And they said, you just go away and relax and come back and we'll continue. Do you know what happened during my sabbatical? COVID. So it's pastor's worst nightmare on his sabbatical. The elders send you away and while you're on sabbatical, they shut down the church. So when the pastor comes back, there's no meetings happening, there's no congregation, there's no giving and everybody's freaking out like, what are we going to do? Another thing happened when I came back when we eventually did open the church back up uh, after 15 weeks, and I know that was probably even quicker than what you guys had got to experience, and I've been kind of following what Canada does about those things. Um, anyway, we were able to open back up after 15 weeks, but it was a completely different church. And I noticed that it did not take much to trigger people. All you had to do was drop a word in the middle of a group of people, and you could see sparks fly. covid mask, vaccine, George Floyd, and best of all, Trump. 
And you could watch the anger on both sides. And no matter what side you took, you know, there was always somebody else that was angry about whatever side. And we weren't content just to disagree respectfully. We just internally, our reaction, probably all of us during that season was not, we're not just going to disagree, we're going to annihilate each other. And so, I don't know if that's just an experience I had. I'm kind of thinking that was kind of a worldwide phenomenon. It kind of bled into your uh, space too. But we have to learn some things about meekness. The more power that you have, the more prone you are to use your power to control others. Do you have some measure of power? There's some powerful people in this room. Are you using your power in meekness to create a contribution or to control? Uh, the more privileged we are, the more prone we are to believe that we're entitled to possess everything on the earth. The more we identify with the majority culture, the more prone we are to neglect those who are in the minority. The wealthier we are, the more beautiful we are, the more athletic you are, the more intelligent you are, the more we must learn to embrace the attitude of meekness and love the meekness of Jesus. Some people don't like Jesus. He's a little too meek for them. And that's what actually causes them to reject Jesus. Here's the big idea of the message this morning. I'm less interested in you writing down words than listening and absorbing them and responding to them. But here's the big idea. The landscape of God's blessing is accessed only by those who fiercely pursue meekness. The landscape of God's blessing is accessed only by those who fiercely pursue meekness. Let me ask you a question. How many of you want to be blessed by God? Raise your hand. Keep it in the ears like, I want to be blessed by God. I want all God's good. God wants to bless me. I don't want to do anything to hinder that. Here's the thing. God wants to bless you. But if you want God's blessing, you have to lean in to the, to the words of Jesus when Jesus says, blessed are the meek. So, the question we need to ask is, what is this blessing? Jesus said, blessed are the meek. What, what does it mean to be blessed by God? Uh, listen, I pray you will never lose the wonder of the reality of the simple truth that God longs to bless you. He loves you. He wants his best for you. He wants to use you. He wants to supply everything you need. God wants to bless you. Don't ever lose that. Sometimes we react against kind of the, the prosperity preachers that promise health, wealth, and wisdom to everybody for any reason. Is all, all you have to do is have enough faith. Listen, we can react against that as rightly we should, but don't overreact to that and think, well, God wouldn't want to bless somebody like me. God wants to bless you. So, the way the Beatitudes have most often been taught goes something like this. If you want to be happy, try really, really hard to do these eight things. Have you ever, how many of you ever heard somebody teach us and say the word blessed means happy? 
Like, happy are the meek. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Have you ever heard that? Listen, the opposite of, of blessed is not unhappy. So, you know, happy is kind of maybe nearing some truth to that. But listen, the opposite of blessed is not unhappy. The opposite of blessed is what? Cursed. Now, does that take on some more significance for what Jesus is actually teaching here? Jesus wants to remove a curse from our life. And the way the curse is removed is through meekness. The opposite of blessed is cursed. And Jesus' desire is not just to turn unhappy people into happy people. Jesus' desire is to turn cursed people into blessed people. The blessing of God commands God's favor and his goodness in my life. And in order to do that, he's got to deal with the curse that's currently on my life because of my sin. So this is how he did it. The blessing of God came because God the Father treated God the Son as if he was cursed. He hung him on a tree so that all of those who repent and believe in Jesus, though they are cursed, can be treated as if they were as blessed as Jesus. That's the gospel. And that's the crux of what Jesus opens up the Sermon on the Mount with, is he is here to bring a blessing because he's willing to be treated as if he's cursed. And that brings incredible ramifications in our lives. So, who gets blessed? Let's find out. First of all, let's think about this. We've got to view the landscape promised to those who are meek. Let's view the landscape. So I want to ask you just to kind of come with me on a very sonic journey through the landscape of Scripture. And, and again, we're just dealing with one verse, so don't, don't freak out a little bit. But Jesus mentions something about the earth in this passage. Blessed are the meek. They, will sh they shall inherit what? The earth. Another synonymous word is land. And so, you, you should be asking yourself, what land? Is Jesus promising me 40 acres? Do I get more real estate? Is that a blessing? Might be a blessing. That's not the blessing that he's talking about. Jesus is using the term earth or land to point us back to things that have already been revealed to us in the Scripture. It's a hyperlink. You know what a hyperlink is, right? You click on it, it takes you somewhere else. And so when Jesus dropped this beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, do you know what he wants you to do? He wants in your mind, you should already know this, you should know that these disciples that were listening, they knew their Bibles, they knew their own testament, their minds went all the way back to the first page of the Bible. Do you know that earth is mentioned in the first page of the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he talked about how the, the land and the sea were separated. And God continues to talk about this land. He placed mankind on the earth in a garden 
What do you think about, when you think about a garden, you think about planting and digging in dirt. And we found out very quickly that the man and the woman didn't obey God. And so they forfeited the earth. They forfeited the garden. They were kicked out of the land that was promised. That land was the space where eternal God dwelt with man in perfect harmony. And it was lost because of sin. And then pretty soon, what do we find out? God chooses a man named Abram, and he promises him what? A land. Have you ever heard of the promised land? I'm going to give you a land that I will show you. And the the story continues, and we get into Joshua, and, and he brings the people into the promised land. And then pretty soon, after a couple of generations, actually a couple of centuries, They are kicked out of the land and they are taken captive into the land of Egypt and they forfeit, they lose the land. And yet God brings revival and gives them, uh, uh, these exiled people, possession back in the land. Now, I know that that was a quick survey, but I just basically give you a survey of the Old Testament. And it's all about the the possession and the dispossession of land. It's about God giving and then God taking away. It's about God blessing people with land and then they forfeit it through their own sin. And so Jesus says, listen, if you want the space where God and man dwell together on earth again, it's going to come to people who are meek. As a matter of fact, there's another hyperlink here. And I want to show it to you. It's Psalm 37 because we see echoes all throughout this chapter of Scripture. We're not going to read it all, but I want to read it really quick for you here. We're just going to put it on the screen or you turn the Bible here. I want you to notice Psalm 37. Jesus obviously had this chapter of Scripture in his mind when he was giving these beatitudes to his followers. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell, where? In the land and befriend faithfulness. Now, I want you to notice something about this passage. You see this very obvious dichotomy between God's responsibility and my responsibility. Now, remember the context in which Jesus was speaking. When Jesus gave these beatitudes, the land of Israel where they were living was occupied by a secular Roman governor and secular Roman people. And the disciples were praying and hoping that Jesus would be the one who would kick them out and give them back the physical land. And so they were probably fretting and they were probably wondering, when is God going to deal with all of the evil and all of the oppressors and all the people that are making my life miserable right now? And you should be thinking, when is God going to be dealing with all of the evil that I see around me? And when is God going to restore the kingdom to earth? And why are we in the minority? And, and, and why is there so much hostility about people that are just simply trying to follow Jesus? That's the cultural context into which we're living right now too. And if you've been fretting and worrying and anxious about all those different things, you need to hear what God says in Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord. Just do good. That's your responsibility. Dwell in the land. Just just stay put. Don't freak out. Don't move away. 
befriend faithfulness. Just get up every morning, do the next right thing, spend time with Jesus, witness to your neighbor, give faithfully, serve the community. And then notice what he says, delight yourself in the Lord. Because there may not be a whole lot else for you to delight in right now. And then he flips it and says, here's what God will do. Here's God's responsibility. He will give you the desires of your heart. My responsibility is not to go after the desires of my heart. My responsibility is to trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, befriend faithfulness, delight myself in the Lord. And he, his responsibility is to give me the delights of my heart. It continues in verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, my responsibility. Trust in him, my responsibility. And he will act, God's responsibility. Verse 6, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Does that sound like meekness to you? Let go of your anger. It's amazing how we can justify our anger and think, well, the anger that I have is righteous indignation, right? Now, listen, um, first of all, that's not a biblical term. And you may say, well, wait, 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 wait. What about those verses over in Ephesians 4 where it says, be angry and don't sin? I'm just trying to obey the scripture when it says, be angry. I'm just trying to be a faithful Christian. I mean, Christians should be angry about the evil stuff going on around them. Wait, 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 wait. We're all going to get angry. But the Bible says, you are not to sin. And you're to let go of your anger before the sun goes down. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And so if you're triggered and you're angry at the stuff you're seeing in the culture, stuff you're seeing in your kids' lives, stuff you're seeing in in the community, it, it might trigger your anger. But the response of meekness is to let it go. Trust in the Lord. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Don't fret about it. It tends only to evil. Here's the promise. The evildoers will be cut off. It doesn't say go cut off all the evildoers. That's not your responsibility. That's God's responsibility. But those who wait on the Lord, whose responsibility? My responsibility. Will what? Inherit the land. It's a picture of meekness. And there's the promise that there's going to be a reward for those who are meek. Verse 11, if you continue to go, says this. It says, but the meek shall inherit the land. This was written a thousand years before Jesus gave that as a beatitude. He's simply giving the hyperlink to it. He says, he says that we're to delight, they're to delight themselves in abundant peace. You skip down, verse 22 says, for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. We see the words blessed and inherit and land all in the same verse. Jesus is just quoting scripture that he wrote a thousand years before this time. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. And then finally, verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Therefore, verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on him when the wicked are cut off. So my question to you is, how do you respond when you encounter evil? How do you respond 
when you see things that would cause you to worry and become anxious? Is it to meekly embrace that quality and trust in the Lord and do good in the meantime? I mean, meekness, I think, is something that, that, that we confuse because we really don't understand what it is. We, we need to understand what it is. Here's point number two. Take the posture displayed by the meek. So, we've surveyed the landscape of those who are going to be meek, but then let's take the posture displayed by the meek. And again, let's talk about this word. The word meek is synonymous with the word gentle. As a matter of fact, it's translated as the word gentle in other parts. I'm going to show you that here in just a minute. But there's a lot of confusion over meekness because it sounds a whole lot like another word in the English language. What is it? Weakness. And so, it just doesn't sound like a quality that's all that useful. I wonder, is it even desirable for you to embrace meekness in whatever your context is? I, I was thinking about this. I've been around, I've been in Canada for like three days, and I've heard several references to this thing called hockey. <laughs> um, now, I, I heard a play-by-play -play description at lunch today of six hours of hockey. And I just wonder, in the years to come, as you look back on yesterday, if when you pick adjectives to describe what happened on the ice, if there will ever be a time that anyone will choose the word meek. Has anybody ever put the two words meek and hockey in the same sentence? No. As a matter of fact, you think, well, if I want to be a successful businessman, meekness does not seem like a great advantage. If I want to be a competitor on the hockey ice, or if I want to be a competitor in the business world or in the academic world, meekness doesn't just, it just doesn't seem very useful to me. It's because you don't understand what meekness is. So let's talk about what meekness is not. First of all, meekness is not weakness. Someone has described meekness as strength under control. It's a good definition. Um, you might think about a, a dad wrestling with his three kids under the age of 10. As a dad, I knew at any moment I could crush my children. And there were times that I actually did. I was a pretty good wrestler with my three children, and I don't like to lose, and so there's times that I did. That's why this quality needs to be worked into my heart. But the kids, they think they're using all of their strength and all of their might to take on dad. They're going to take down dad, and dad could at any moment crush the children. But what does he do? He restrains himself. He, he only uses a measure of his strength because there's something more valuable than actually winning this against this attack or defending himself. He's bonding. He's, he's, he's doing something far more complicated than the children actually even understand what they're doing. That's a great picture. Um, I have a, a friend, his name is uh, Brant Hansen. He wrote a book called The Men We Need. And in the book, he tells the story about 
Now, when he was uh, a college student and he was being introduced to, he was in charge of some activities and, and somehow he was in a group of people that had to, to take a, a uh, 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 to do inspections or something in the dorm rooms, and and he noticed that when he got into the co-ed dorms, there was a there was a poster that seemed to be hanging on almost every wall in all of the the, the female students' dorm rooms, and he he eventually just asked, "What is the deal with this poster?" And he went on to describe this poster it was the best-selling poster of I don't know back in the '90s or whenever he saw it, and it was a black and white image of a of a guy, he was a good looking guy, he was obviously a model, but he wasn't like the greatest looking model or whatever. He had his shirt off and he was, he was in shape, but he wasn't the most ripped guy, he wasn't the most good looking guy. But he was holding an infant. And the infant was staring at him and he was staring at the infant. And all the girls had that picture in their dorm rooms. And he said, what's the deal? And he said, Every guy in, every girl in this college wants that guy. Not because he's good looking, not because he's ripped, not because he's a model, because he obviously knows something about meekness, strength under control. About um, three months ago, I had uh, spine surgery. Um, I could show you my scar. It's like a four-inch scar down here. And, and they went in there. And, and I remember they rolled me in. And the anesthesiologist came in right before the surgery. And um, I, I was thinking in my head, I'm like, you know, they're going to put me completely out. General anesthesia. And I think, don't they give you a breathing tube when they do that? And so I was wondering, like, when are you going to put the breathing tube in? And I asked the guy, when are you going to put the breathing tube? He's like, oh, we're going to do that after I knock you out. And I'm like, well, if you're going to operate on my back, aren't I going to be like laying on my, like at what point am I going to crawl up on the table and like laying down? And like, is that when the breathing tube's like, no, 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 we're going to do all that for you. And I just had these images of like these doctors and nurses, you know, like coming in and flopping my body over and like missing the table and like, no, no, I, I, I'm like, I realized like in that moment, that's not a picture of meekness. That's a picture of weakness. Absolutely incapable of doing anything. I had no power. I had no control. I just had to surrender. Okay? You know what the picture of meekness was? It's the surgeon who picked up a very sharp instrument that he could use to kill me. And yet, he very meekly made a surgical strike to go in and remove the part of my spine that was compressing this nerve that was causing all of the pain, that's a picture of meekness. And everybody in this room has that kind of power at your disposal. Through your words, your positions of influence, because Many of you know this, which is described as something sharper than any two-edged sword. And you know what some of us do with the two-edged sword? We don't use it like a surgeon's scalpel. We use it like a sword and we swing it like Peter did, cutting off people's ears. 
And Jesus has to come by and clean up your mess, pick up the people's ears and heal it back. It's like it's going to be okay. Just don't pay attention to my followers. Just pay attention to me because I'm a lot less violent than they are. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are the meek. We have to understand the difference between meekness and weakness. Weak people have no ability to show meekness. Only those who have strength and power have the ability to to demonstrate meekness. Meekness is not enabling an abuser. Some of you are in some positions where it's unsafe. In order to exercise meekness doesn't mean that you need to stay in that relationship. Mistreatment to the point of abuse is never acceptable. And so the most loving thing that you can do for an abuser is to hold them accountable for their actions and for you to get to a safe space. And then meekness is not a personality type. Meekness is not sweetness. Meekness is not Niceness. Meekness is not politeness. Meekness is not softness. Meekness is not having low ambition. Listen, no one ever provided for their family. No one ever raised a child. No one ever cared for the marginalized. No one ever defended the freedom of a country. Nobody ever planted a church or fulfilled the Great Commission sitting over in a corner being meek. People with meekness have grand ambition. And so we move forward in meekness. That's what Jesus did and that's what he modeled for us. So what is meekness? Let's get to that. Meekness is, number one, crucifying any action or attitude that communicates harshness. You don't know me very well. If you spent time with me, it probably wouldn't take more than just a few minutes for you to realize there's a lot in me that's going to irritate you. And if you're an average person, if I spend a little time with you, I'm going to find some stuff in you that irritates me. Do you know the only thing that prevents us from crucifying one another is crucifying ourselves? and our demanding spirit, and our entitlement, and taking every bit of harshness, and every tone of voice, and every facial expression, and every use of power that I have, and crucifying that, so that what is communicated is mercy, and grace, mixed with truth, and proper power, but understanding that we stand firm on our convictions, while having a posture that communicates the heart of God and grace. Meekness, secondly, is refusing to fight when God allows chaos to reveal my need for Him. Anybody in the room going through a little chaos this week? Anybody get a bad report from your doctor? Anybody have a low bank statement? Anybody have a car wreck? Anybody troubled about prodigal kids? Anybody troubled about the state of the culture? Not to mention whoever those people are that control laws and decisions and policies and procedures. Anybody have any conflict with your boss? Anybody just living with with this, this weight of anxiety and worry and all of those things because you're identifying so many things in the culture that just seem 
wrong. Can you trust the providential hand of God when he allows chaos in our immediate proximity? The absence of meekness in all of those settings, whether it's anger or control or whether it's worrying or fretting or anxiety, the absence of meekness is evidence of a presence of fear. Now, what we often call anger has a root of fear of losing something we can't control. There was a time when you could control your kids. You can't control them anymore. And you're fearful of what decision they're going to make. And what they're doing, the decisions that they're doing, may be what you call making you angry. And it's actually this like, I'm fearing losing control. Or you, you may have had some freedoms that have taken away from you. And it's rooted in fear. So meekness is the result of finding my security in the providence and the love and the acceptance of God who controls all things. Meekness is a stillness before the Lord as we wait for Him to eliminate the chaos. Here's the next thing. Meekness is the gentle care for those who can't yet see reality. You know any of those people? It's like you read your your Bible and it's like, man, I just love Jesus. This, this makes absolute sense. I see how my life would be blessed if I followed his teachings and I follow his teaching. Why doesn't everybody just follow his teaching? Why doesn't everybody just surrender to him as Lord? And there's people that just are blind to the reality of the glory of Jesus. And so many times those are the people that we knock heads with. So meekness surrenders the right to control those people. It surrenders the right to defend yourself when you're falsely accused. It, it surrenders the right to attack a person or seek revenge. So we should be meek when addressing those who doubt, those who suffer, and those who are caught in sin. Those people are not our enemies. Those people are victims of our enemy spiritual enemy, the devil, and we need to choose our battles wisely. Here's the next thing. Meekness is a powerful tool of persuasion. If we can get this right in our cultural context, we actually will have great power. Notice this verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. It says this, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with, what's that word? Gentleness. Same word that Jesus used for meek. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So meekness is intensely passionate about things like justice and truth and holiness and order and policy and law and even politics. But it makes its arguments from a place of confidence in God's providence. It causes us to speak graciously, graciously when when res while respecting opposing viewpoints and correcting them with gentleness. And then, after we've spoken with gentleness, we back away and we trust 
the sovereignty of God to change a mind in a way that we never could before. Here's the last thing. Meekness reflects faith in God's final verdict. Understanding that right now we are living before the final verdict. If we can trust the king, the judge, eternal God, one day is going to make all things right, that will release me from the responsibility of feeling like I have to. At the, uh, all the ground that we supposedly feel like that we have lost, maybe even in the, the cultural battles that we have right now, understand, Jesus said, blessed are the meek, you're going to inherit the earth. You're not losing any ground. Those who will inherit the, murk, uh, the earth are those who will be meek. So here's the final point. Thirdly, receive the inheritance secured for the meek. Receive the inheritance. God wants to give you an inheritance. What is an inheritance? An inheritance is a treasure you receive when someone who loves you dies. It wasn't a mistake that Jesus used the word inherit. In order for us to receive God's blessing, it was going to become, it was going to come to those whom Jesus loves and who love him as well. So meekness is hereditary. Our only hope of becoming meek is through the inheritance of Christ. Our inheritance is not achieved An inheritance is received. And meekness is not achieved. It's not something you do. It's not something you go out of here and say, I'm going to try harder this week to be more meek. The only hope I have of being more meek is by receiving the meekness of Jesus because I'm abiding with him. I'm experiencing the meekness of Jesus. Therefore, it's imprinting how I communicate meekness to others. And let me ask you this. If you could only use one word to describe the heart of Jesus, what word would you use? Did you know there's only one place in the New Testament where Jesus describes his heart? Let me read it to you. It's Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, what's the word? Gentle, same original word for meek. Jesus says, I am meek. He says, learn from me, I am gentle and lowly, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, some of us read that verse and like, wait, 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 wait. I remember this time when Jesus got really ripped at those money changers at the temple, and he made a whip, and he walked in there and started whipping these guys and turning over their tables. That doesn't seem very meek to me. Or you may think about the time that Jesus called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Remember those times? Like, was Jesus contradicting himself? What we read in Matthew chapter 11 is at the very center of who Jesus is, is a heart that is meek. And whenever Jesus 
operates in an act of judgment, it's actually unnatural for him. It's necessary because of his holiness, but at his very heart, he is meek, he is gentle, and he is the one that wants to give us his heart. He says, come to me. The only way you get this is by receiving it, so you gotta come to me. Jesus invites us to think of him as approachable. He invites us to think of him as welcoming. He invites us to think of him with arms wide open. He invites us to think about him as, a, as having a heart for sinners like you and for me. I've been reading a book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. I read it once. Andrea said you need to read it again uh, because you didn't, you weren't that much meeker after reading it. And so I read it again and I just have taken more notes and, and here's what I've read. And Jesus isn't triggered, harsh, or reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. Does that just make you breathe? When you think of Jesus, do you think he's exasperated with you? Oh, here he comes again. Oh, he's praying again for forgiveness of sin. What about the sin that I forgave him for yesterday? Well, if, is, if that's your perspective of Jesus, you don't understand his heart. Jesus is the most understanding person in the universe. He understands your struggles. He understands your sin. He understands your attractions that you don't even understand. And he invites you to come to him. Christ's deepest impulse is to move toward sin and suffering, not away from it. I don't know about you, when I read that, I'm like, I've never thought about that. My thought is Jesus would want to distance himself from the darkest place on the planet. Jesus would want to distance himself from the, the ugliest of sin. And yet, the ugliest of sin and the darkest places in my heart is what attracts Jesus to me because his heart is gentle and lowly. Christ gets more joy and comfort when we come to him for help and mercy than we do. Jesus gets more joy and comfort from helping a sinner than a sinner gets joy and comfort because it's his heart of gentleness and kindness and lowliness. The heart of Christ is gentle. Jesus does not simply act gently. He is, at his very heart, gentleness, meekness. And only as we experience the gentleness of Jesus do we have any hope of being gentle in the midst of a dark world. Listen, his heart longs to repair the damage caused by the harshness you've experienced from others. There's stories in this room. And you're in this church because the last church you were in was not gentle. You, you're, you no longer talk to that family member because the last time you talked to them, they weren't gentle. You, you, you've distanced yourself from your mother or father or brother or sister because they're not gentle. And while they weren't, 
They named the name of Christ, called themselves a Christian. They quoted Bible verses to you, and they had Bible on the table, and they were in church all the time. And somehow you equated someone who identified as a follower of Christ, who was not meek, as Christ who was, and you've written off Christ because you've thought his followers were an accurate reflection of him. And Jesus says to you, come to me. I want to repair the damage that others have caused by their harshness. Jesus longs for you to come to him to remove the sense of shame from your past sin. You may think, if, if I was honest about the things that I struggle with, the, the, the activity that I did even last weekend, and, and, and the way I'm thinking about harming myself or harming others, Jesus wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. Jesus says, come to me. I'm gentle and lowly of heart. The more sin and the suffering that you've experienced, the more the heart of Jesus longs for you to come to him. Jesus longs to replace a self-righteous, religious conformity with a heart that loves to worship and serve Christ from the inside out. And Jesus longs for you to come to him to revive our first love for him as a gentle Savior. Let me ask you just to bow your heads for a moment. I want you to think for a moment just about the harshness that you've experienced in this world, even this week. Maybe it was a a physical hurt that you experienced. Maybe it was a tone of voice. Maybe it was a dirty look. Maybe it was a distancing from someone else who just didn't care enough to notice that you were there. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Dwell in the land. Cultivate faithfulness. Do good. Trust the Lord. He will act. When you think about Jesus, do you think of a harsh tone? Do you think of a welcoming spirit? Or do you think about someone who's exasperated with you? Listen, he longs when people who are suffering and sinning come to him for a fresh start, for healing, for mercy. And he's inviting you to come to him today. Maybe what's prevented you from coming to him is a harsh encounter with one of his followers. Listen, I can't apologize on their behalf, but Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy and light for I'm gentle and lowly of heart. 
right now, would you just open up your heart to him and say, Lord, I, I'm, I'm coming. You've invited me to come. I'm coming as best I know how. You might even acknowledge it's, it hasn't felt safe until right now. I know you know who I am. I know you know what I've done, but just can't imagine that you would want to have anything to do with me. But I'm coming. Here's my sin. Here's my heartache. Here's my anxiety. Here are my fears. Here's my anger. Thank you that you welcome me into your heart. I trust you. I'm going to follow you. And I believe that one day the final verdict will be that you will give an inheritance to those who are meek. And so God, give me the grace this week to reflect your gentleness in my marriage, my friendships, my workplace, my school, sports teams. Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word. Jesus, thank you for living in gentleness and dying in gentleness. You hung on that cross, treated as if you were cursed so that you could treat us as if we are blessed. And I pray that even in these, these days where we navigate as a, a minority people that believe things that are spiritual and eternal and true and so countercultural, that you would give us wisdom, give us a posture of humility and grace. And God, I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind, that they would find those things so radical and yet so attractive that they wouldn't know what to do with this other than just to come and ask us a reason for the hope that's in us. And God, give us the ability to articulate your glories and your kindness and your goodness and your grace. God, use this church as a light in the darkness. God, use every mother and every father as a light in their home. Use every student in their school and on their sports teams to shine bright. And God, would you replicate and multiply the disciples in this church over and over and over again, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.